0: Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer, sharing my journey in development. Domain-driven design, or DDD, makes application code a lot cleaner. However, like any other software development approach, There are loads of anti-patterns to avoid and best practices that may not be readily apparent when you start developing applications in this manner. In this episode, we'll talk about some common anti-patterns that you'll encounter in code bases where someone was trying to do domain-driven design, but failed to do so properly. We'll also talk about why these anti-patterns are a problem and what you can do to overcome them. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I've been kind of trying
1: to shift my mindset a little bit about this whole lockdown mess. Yeah. Just from the perspective of, okay, this is still extremely disruptive and I feel like I'm walking and somebody is stepping on my feet at random. And that's the way everything feels right now. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, I might be fine or I might trip. And that's how things have felt since March. And so I'm trying to figure out how to look at this in a way where I come out the other side of this in a better position than I went into it. Hmm. Cause I do believe there's some lessons for resiliency in there and I'm not sure what they are yet. In other news, uh, I was just complaining to you early this afternoon. I was so frustrated because I hadn't gotten anything done on the new website Mm -hmm. right and i'm complaining to you and you know you get a windows update right before we record and so i had been kind of working on the site and i got all the crap fixed that was blocking me (laughs) for like the last week and a half in you know 45 minutes to an hour (laughs) and today so i had having to like go back through that with you so it's it's really interesting just to see that you know as much as i had to struggle with that crap you know and i was able to just hit it today and be in a different headspace and just knock it out of the park and so that's those two things are kind of tied together that's kind of what i want and i'm not sure where to go with that so how about you
0: cool well uh like you said i got a windows update y'all can't hear it but my laptop fan is running at full blast since that update uh it's super annoying and something that happens on a regular basis i can hear it because will and i well Will hasn't gotten his yet uh cuz they're sitting in my living room but we recently updated our uh, our monitor monitoring headphones. I went with a pair of in-ear monitors a professional level uh that I can use with my music and stuff and Will wanted a pair similar to the ones I had with the coiled cord so you can have a little bit of stretch. So yeah, we we have new uh new monitors for uh, for doing the podcast. These things are phenomenal. I talked to our sound tech lead at uh, church and had him suggest. He's like, well, these are the ones that if I had the money, I would buy them for myself. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I I checked with Will. I'm like, hey, do you mind if I spend a little bit more money on these? And he's like, dude, all the work you did without getting paid, yeah, you could spend a little bit more money on nicer equipment. Well, that was like an instant because I knew I would get yeah. something
1: too. Because I I spend about five minutes a week untangling the cables
0: for yeah.
1: these headphones before before every recording day because otherwise they're so knotted up
0: that I'd have to lay in the floor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh it, it's exciting. I um. These things they they have a they're really awesome, but uh, I can't hear anything going on unless it comes through the microphone because I've got the monitor turned on now and so like it like completely blocks out all the room noise. It's so cool. So in other really awesome news, I was nominated for the Nashville Technology Council's Software Developer of the Year award. Nice yeah. That's really cool. My boss told me that he'd nominated me, and I was like, "Well, that's really nice." And then I got the email from uh, NTC last night, and I was like, "Whoa!" Like, it's one thing to be told, "Hey, I nominated you for an award." It's another thing when you get the email saying, "You've been nominated for this award. Please fill out this form so that we can, you know, assess who the finalists are." And I'm like, "Ooh." OK, so uh, I filled that out and uh, they're going to announce the finalists in December and then the the winner gets announced in February. So really cool. I'm, I'm yeah. very excited about that. Uh, and finally, last thing I have to talk about, uh, I'm filling in for our production lead at church this week. I mean, I've done this before when she was filling in for the pastor or when it was her turn to speak on a Saturday or something uh, but she was there in the building with us. She's on vacation right now. A well-deserved vacation, mind you, because she hasn't had a break since a few months before COVID hit. So, yeah. We have three of us who kind of, over the course of learning the streaming stuff and everything, became leaders on the tech team. One over the computers, one over the sound, and then me over cameras. And so it's like my responsibility to... Maintain the cameras and train new camera techs, and like oversee that kind of stuff. Since uh, we've trained more camera techs than any other position, I'm the one who got to step up into the lead role, and I'm also the only extrovert. So, (laughs) (laughs) already that that helped. That helped. Yeah, that helped. So uh, anyway, speaking of being extroverted and confident, take your financial confidence. To the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee only certified
1: financial planner and financial coach who serves tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning, virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado.
0: Yeah, Level Up Financial Planning, like the Complete Developer Podcast, believes in the importance of having a real plan and taking action so that you can live your best life.
1: Yeah, a lot of times people approach investing and they think that they're too young or they don't have enough investments to work with a financial planner, but Level Up's unique pricing model allows you to pay monthly and without requiring investment management. Um, so there's really no reason to wait to feel confident about your financial decisions.
0: And guys, you know what's best of all? Lucas and Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for his clients. What that means is he is required to act in his client's best interest. A lot of times you will get a financial planner and they're really just a glorified salesman. That is not Lucas at all. You only pay him as long as you're getting value, and you stop paying when you no longer get value.
1: He's got a lot more resources and stuff you can learn over
0: at levelupfinancialplanning.com. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things that cause problems when attempting to use Trip D or Domain Driven Design. How do you Trip like that? D? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> like, that's that sounds like the name of like a rapper who's got so many tattoos on his face, he looks like a high school desk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what the world, man? Trip D? I, re- I read DDD because it's all throughout this episode. This is the only place we'll put Domain Driven Design in here. And like, I read DDD and every time I read it, I just read it as Trip D. Uh, so, okay. To start, we're not going to assume that you know anything about domain-driven design. Uh, According to Wikipedia, domain-driven design is the concept that the structure and language of software code, class names, methods, variables, should match the business domain. Essentially, the idea is that The code and the business logic that it implements will have a shared vocabulary that makes communication between the developers and the stakeholders a lot easier by moving implementation details out of the code that handles the business logic. The primary focus of the application is on the core domain and its domain logic. Designs are based on a model of the domain rather than a model of the implementation details uh, that is required to support the domain. Uh, This is something like database structures. This approach allows rapid iteration involving both the domain experts and the development team. It also makes it quicker and easier to onboard developers as they can look at the code to understand the business rules.
1: DDD has a few core principles that are observed, but until you get really deep into this, a useful way to think about it is that it's basically the application of OOP to business rules. Now, somebody probably just twitched in the audience hearing that um, because that's not completely accurate, but it is how you end up with most of the anti-patterns that we're about to discuss. And so I wanted to start from that level so that you can look at the anti-patterns and basically get the rest of the way. Most of these problems really arise because developers have halfway implemented DDD, but they haven't taken it as far as they need to in order to be able to reap all the benefits. So the very first uh, anti-pattern is primitive obsession. And I know that that sounds like a lifetime movie title, but actually here's what this is. Uh, primitive obsession occurs when language primitives such as strings, integers, etc. are used instead of small objects for simple tasks. Because the validation and rules around the type are not sufficient for your use case, you'll have to add more rules that live outside the object.
0: Yeah. For example, a good way to think about this is using a string for an email address. While email addresses are definitely strings, not all strings are email addresses. And this makes it possible for an invalid email address to be set. And also means that you have to keep the validation around email addresses somewhere else.
1: Yeah, and that gets complicated, right? Because if you're passing it around and some other piece of the code needs it, it also has to validate that. To fix it, you need to create custom types. And these are typically value objects to encapsulate the types that you're trying to express in code with the primitive types in your language. And then you include the validation logic with the type and never allow it to be created in an invalid state. That way, when you get one, you know it's already validated.
0: Some possible issues that you could run into uh, are that you will likely have to make conversions between the primitive type and your type around the edges of your system. Uh, This would include API endpoints, databases, and file interactions, which are not part of your core business rules. Something that I personally like to, to do is... I like to have a business logic layer. Yeah, and your
1: your DDD entities live there and the storage and transmission concerns do not, right? Like this is just right. an area of your code, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where you're going with that. And that's typically why we do that.
0: Yeah, I, personally, I like to separate out my logic. So I like to have a layer that is, when building an API, for example, a layer that is communicating with the outside world, right. a layer that is business logic, If I need them, a layer that is services and then a layer that is talking to long term storage, so database or whatever. I mean, the main idea
1: is to get that where you're not dealing with these storage concerns in the entity because when a business person walks through the code with you, they're going to look at it and go, What is this stuff? You know, like, and you're going to have to explain database design and all that. So you you don't want to do that. Um, And that's why you, you know, you split it out and I split it out too, because if you do it the other way, you find out that you're not going to want to do it the other way very long. Yeah. Because it hurts. (laughs) And speaking of things that hurt, and these are things that are not necessarily as obvious initially, um, the next one is the anemic domain model. And an anemic domain model occurs when entities are built as simple bags of readable and writable properties. This forces the entity logic into other locations in the code because the entity doesn't actually do anything the entities basically define almost no behavior themselves and they can be put into a bad state from outside of themselves. So let me understand what you're saying here. Are you saying they're basically like DTOs? Yeah, it's that's exactly what... I mean, if you make an entity anemic enough, it becomes a DTO.
0: Okay, that's what, that's what I thought you were getting at. And I'm like, is that what he's getting at here? And so that makes sense. So an example of this might be a person object with a name, address, phone number, so-so on it. If someone wants to change the address, they either interact directly with the properties on the object itself or make a call to an object that does it for them. This could mean that the object ends up in an invalid state. For instance, if the city in the address was changed, but the postal code was not.
1: Right. And so you, you basically want to have things structured in such a way that the invariants of that type are enforced and it cannot be created or changed into a valid or to an invalid state. Yeah. So to fix it, you know, the very first thing to do is to remove the setters on public properties. And then you create methods for the discrete actions on the entity to replace what the callers were doing before with, you know, property access. Yeah. Then you alter the callers
0: yeah, something that I've done uh, for addresses is to create an address object. Yep.
1: And As a then, value object.
0: Yeah, and then make it so that uh, you have to change the whole object. Yeah, make it immutable. And
1: yeah. of course, you're using in Hibernate, so you don't get burned. Um, Entity Framework has actually got a weird thing with value types where even if it's in the same table, it joins out to the table again to get it because they're like, well, it could be at another table. Yeah, so you can imagine the amount of jankiness that puts in your SQL that gets emitted. But
0: um, Sounds like some DBAs I have worked with uh, when I was doing some consulting that are just (laughs) out there like, well, it could be over here. And I'm like, that doesn't even make any logical sense whatsoever. It's a database. It's in a
1: place or it's not. It's not a could. Like, I don't want, do not give me, uh, I don't want Schrodinger's column. (laughs) Okay, I don't want to open the table to look for Schrodinger's column and see if it's dead or not. All right, that's not okay. Yeah. So you just need to introduce me to your DBAs. I can fix it.
0: This was years ago on a consulting thing that I was doing. I'm, I mean, look at it this way: they'll either they'll either acknowledge that I'm
1: right, or they will become homicidal. Either way, they're not your problem anymore. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Just so I, I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. The other thing you got to watch is fix your constructors. Typically, you would get rid of empty constructors and create parameterized ones that initialize the entity in a valid state, so it never transits a bad state.
0: Yeah because then somebody will do it
1: in the code if you do that.
0: So some possible issues here is you'll probably find that some callers are difficult to refactor because they orchestrate changes over a set of entities. You may also have issues around constructors if your framework of choice initializes objects for you and expects empty constructors. Uh, This is why I really personally love dependency injection.
1: Yeah, it's it's very helpful, although you don't typically see this happen much with entities themselves. You see it with like the repositories and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like if you're materializing an instance of an object out of entity framework, I believe there's a pretty good number of cases where it requires an empty constructor. But that empty constructor doesn't have to be public. It finds it through reflection and does its thing. And so you can kind of get around it, but you've got the empty constructor sitting there. Taunting you as a developer, going, well, this could get screwed up. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: but yeah, it can be it can be a little interesting at times to do this. So, the next anti-pattern that you might run into is ID leakage. Entities in a system should know their identifiers. Objects that need to retrieve those entities also need to know the IDs other entities should have references to the entity instead of the ID. Uh, otherwise, they'll be forced to interact with the persistence layer when they need the entity itself.
1: Right. And you know, so, for example, let's assume that you have an invoice entity that contains a set of line items. I mean, this is pretty common. Uh, yeah. Each of those has an inventory item ID on it. So it's, you know, the line item has a reference to the thing that's in the warehouse. If you're trying to determine how much the entire order weighs, you'll have to pull in the inventory items by their IDs, which means that your entity layer now has to talk to the persistence layer to go, okay, what is the total weight of this shipment? Versus, hey, I just have it and I, and I, I summarize it and I, I go on with life. No, yeah. Now. To fix it, you just replace the ID references with references to the actual entity, and you lazy load as necessary. And notice I said just do that because there's no such thing as just doing that. This is a pain. Just do it, man. Yeah, just do it. Just, you know. Like, I'm not wearing my Nike Mars. shirt. Yeah, it's you're it's your out of farmland. Just terraform Mars. It's not a big deal, right? Like, it's, it's the word just used in a possibly not just scenario.
0: Nothing is ever just anything.
1: Right. Um, and, you know, and there's some possible issues with this, too, because if the object being referenced is big or it takes a lot of time to load up, um, that that connection can cause performance issues that you have to deal with. So you might have to slightly bend the rules of DDD in order to get good performance here.
0: Yeah. So the next anti-pattern is entanglement between commands and queries. The concerns between the write side of an application and the read side of an application are not the same. The command or write side probably needs access to the entire entity model, whereas the query or read side only needs parts of the entity and related entities. If you entangle the two sides, You'll either have very slow reads due to bringing back too much data or your writes won't have all the data that they need.
1: So we'll go back to the invoice and line item
0: uh, example from
1: before uh, with the line items also having a reference to the inventory item again as before. If you have the command and query side entangled, a query to get the invoice totals for last year means loading everything under the invoices, even if it doesn't make sense. In other words, like you use the same repository method for mm. you know retrieving the data for this page and also retrieving the entity because I'm doing some business process on it. Those are not the same. People like to dry it up and they dry it up too much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you need a little bit of moisture in there.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> moist. It's one of everybody's favorite words.
0: I I never thought anything about that word until I saw uh, that TV show, Dead Like Me. That's all I'm going to say about it. You can move on now. Okay. If you want to understand, watch the show.
1: So Your queries probably should not load up the entire entity model. Um, They're just a projection off of that entity model and off of other stuff attached to it, usually, that is tailored to what is required by the caller. In fact, you'll see this a whole lot Um, If you go a little bit past rest and you start getting into the um, hate OAS stuff where you actually do data shaping on your API calls and you go, just give me these fields or you're doing like GraphQL, um, which I haven't been in a slugging match with at all for the last two months. (laughs) You know, you'll you'll see data shaping because that's very important on the read side. Don't bring me anything I don't need because it's in my way and it has to be transmitted. So you just don't want to do that. You just want to project off the model and. That's kind of the the way you handle that problem. And the other side doesn't reuse the methods that produce things for the read side. Now, there are a few possible issues.
0: Yeah, so this can collide in a bad way with the way a lot of developers understand dry. And when we say dry, we are meaning do not repeat yourself or don't repeat yourself. Because do not repeat yourself would be dry which is just weird. Devs will want to reuse the code that loads an entity up for query purposes, even though these are two entirely separate reasons for loading this data. What's going to happen is this will tangle your command and query infrastructure up in a way, and it's going to hurt performance.
1: Yeah. In other words, don't make things that aren't the same thing into the same thing because they're not the same thing and you're going to find out the hard way. Now, Speaking of uh, things that are not the same thing, this happens at a larger scale as well with a lack of bounded context. Um, And this is a bit more of an interesting problem. Sometimes an entity is used in very different ways by different parts of the system. For instance, an order entity looks really different from the inventory side of things than it does for fulfillment or billing. A really naive implementation might tie these concepts together in such a way that a change in either area impacts the other area negatively. So, for instance, you know, deep loading a bunch of stuff that you know is needed because the you know the billing system needs it, whereas the warehouse doesn't care. But now the warehouse is slow.
0: Yeah. So, the example that Will gives in the uh, the outline, let's assume you have an order entity that is used by your warehouse inventory system your fulfillment system, and your billing system. Your billing system and warehouse management system change due to expanding your company into other countries, and your billing system is forced to change due to tax law changes. If it's all the same entity, it's all the same project, which could mean expensive compromises on your warehouse fulfillment systems due to regulatory compliance issues on the billing system.
1: Right. Essentially, what you've got to do is structure things in such a way that the area that gets changed at one time is small. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, a regulatory change could hit you at the same time as a market change hits you. And you're going to be scrambling trying to fix it all before the regulatory deadline happens or before the market change eats your lunch.
0: So I have seen similar stuff happen where it was a literally a junior developer like, first job out of college who built this, this system. Great job for someone with no work experience, but just didn't know these kind of things to think about. And then when this happened, the... Uh, been around for 20-odd years and, you know, doesn't quite understand the newer tech stuff, developer comes in and puts in a bunch of hard-coded values and stuff like that. And then I get called in, like in the next round of, hey, we need to fix something on this. And I'm like pulling my hair out because, oh my, I'm not really pulling my hair out. I wouldn't do that. I value my hair too much. But, you know, I'm just like, oh my goodness, this thing is a mess. Yeah.
1: And it gets more painful to fix because it's, so broad in scope. That's, I mean, that's the main issue here. Yeah. To fix it, you need to break things into bounded contexts so that a multi-faced entity is actually now separate entities for each of the business contexts for which you're trying to solve problems. In other words, you just keep that functionality separate. Now, the storage may be the same, and this is why you
0: separate from the storage is so you can do stuff like this. Some possible issues are that this can be brittle if your organizational structure is still unstable or if you had a single context entity that got really large and entangled. Now, the latter is especially nasty politically because it's hard to show a business value for rewriting working code until that code is already costing money by causing a problem. Uh, And, you know, I've run into this. No joke, y'all. I I have seen this and I'm like, this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. I've said, this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem and was ignored because it wasn't a problem yet. And now I'm rewriting an entire system because what I said, you know, years ago, this is going to be a problem is now a problem.
1: Yeah. The way I usually handle this is I actually send an email saying that this is a problem <laughs> and I keep the email. So when it comes yeah. back around, it's like, you know, I told you two years ago, dude, this was going to oh, blow up in our faces.
0: <laughs> it, it it wasn't, it didn't come back on me. Like you have in here that it gets blamed on you. Like it didn't get blamed on me. Actually, what happened was I got called in and told, hey, we need to rewrite the system. You were the one raising the flag on it a while back. So what ideas do you have? Because we're thinking about putting you in charge of
1: it. Ah, that's good too. Yeah, that's
0: yeah. It 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 ended up being a good thing for me because I have really good leadership.
1: Yeah, uh, I've had a deal. I mean, I got good leadership now, and if I raise yeah. an issue, it definitely would go that way. But I've worked at places in the past where you kept an audit trail, so you could say, "No, I told you this was a problem two years ago. You ignored me mm-hmm. because it was blame oriented." So you you kind of have to play it by ear, but you have to catch these things before they get so big that you can't fix them without it being political. Cause if you can sneak it through then you're fine.
0: And if you, if you come into something or if it was something done, you know, especially if you're in a larger organization, it was something done by someone else in the organization. And you're like, Hey, this is an issue. And you like, you, you just, you document, Hey, here's these things. And what I did was I just documented, all right, here's, what it's doing. Here's what it needs to do. And I kept that in my notebook. So when I got called in and so told, hey, we're rebuilding the system. What ideas do you have? Because you were the one who said, hey, we need to do something about this. I had all that written down. And I'm like, all right, let me flip to this page. And here we go.
1: Yeah, that's really (laughs) nice. Oh, by the way, and I didn't mention this um, in the start, but Evernote now has a dark theme on Windows. And so my favorite note-taking thing, I don't have to dim the screen to use it. Yeah. That's awesome. Also, guys,
0: sip your whiskey, don't breathe it. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You're just weak. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh Uh-huh. That never happens to me. The the next anti-pattern that we have is... Speaking of stuff that never happens to either of us. (laughs) implementation driving the domain model. So your domain model should be broken up based on the business model, not based on the database structure. This means that a single entity spans multiple tables, uh, that inheritance is in the mix, or even that attributes are loaded or saved from Disparate data sources. Oh my goodness! I'm not even going into that. I've told too many stories already.
1: Yeah, I think everybody has a horror story. I was just waiting on you to tell yours
0: because, yeah, it's it's magical when you have to deal with that. I will. I will tell you this. I had dealt with so many of these that um, I had to come back and make some adjustments to, to some code that I wrote very very early in my career and. I just assumed that I had done that because I had been dealing with other people doing it for so much. When I got in there and saw that I hadn't, I was like, like, I think I actually sent you a message. I'm like, thank you for training me not to do this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's unpleasant. Um, so let's say that you have a fulfillment system again, where you have an order entity, but there are now two subtypes. There's an online order and a physical order, and these refer to how orders are processed and delivered. However, because you have multiple tables in the mix now, probably, the online order and physical order are separate types with references to their base order, which represents another table. And I've seen this done with inheritance where they don't use like the ORM inheritance, but they go, well, this object has an order in it even though it's a physical order and it's got a dot order that loads the crap from the other table. Mm. And so they try to do like this weird composition thing with it because they're too tied to the data model. Essentially, you know, this is like an active record model or slightly worse. Typically like active record is like the peak of this. The model structure can't change independently from the persistent structure when this happens. And so when you have to do things like optimize database access, it, Spirals way up into the code further than it should.
0: So one place I've seen this was after I showed okay, oh grief. This was back when I was a junior developer. I showed the other junior developers, and I think there might have been some seniors in there too. But I showed them AutoMapper, and if used right, AutoMapper is great for mapping the things that that don't change between your models. Yep. Yeah, um, it, but <laughs> it makes it makes things easier. What ended up happening is they they were like, "Oh, hey, this saves me a lot of time on writing these this mapping code." So I'm just going to like like they ended up spending more time trying to get their their view models and their like business models to match the database model. Yep, than they would have if they had just written the mapping code. And I get it. That's, that's absolutely a junior mistake. That is totally something that I probably did when I was working with you. Cause I know there was quite a few times that you were just like, why are you spending all this time doing that when you should just do it this way? And like, you kind of trained that out of me, but these were people who didn't have you as a mentor. Everybody has to (laughs) do that. Right. Like it's, Oh yeah.
1: Um, you know, I don't necessarily want to be critical of a junior dev for doing that because it's part of their growth. Right. Oh, like yeah. And
0: I, I'm not, I'm not talking bad about them for this because like, like I said, I'm sure I did it when I was with you. It's just, I was a little further along.
1: Well, and I was a little rougher on you too.
0: Oh of, yeah, you were. Um, Cause
1: I was like, you gotta, you gotta lock it down and get, you know, get, get that pay scale up <laughs> as quick as you can. Uh, so that was definitely the goal there. But yeah, I, Going back to the auto mapper thing, auto mapper is like an acetylene torch. If you use it right, it's great. If you use it to reweld your gas tank, you're going to have a bad time. Well, you're going to have a very short time, actually.
0: <laughs> if there's gasoline in the tank or I fumes. Mean, that's true. That's true. You got to like. are worse. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's,
1: you just have to be careful about tangling the implementation details into the domain
0: model. So, to, yeah, to fix it, you want to separate your storage from the entities being stored. You might have some that belong to a single table. You might not, but the table structure is completely irrelevant. Um, actually, I've learned not to use the word irrelevant at work because apparently I have overused it. Uh, and whenever I say irrelevant, certain people just shut off. That sounds handy. <laughs> like my lead developer, I say I say something. Oh, like this is this is re- like I can't use the word redundant or irrelevant because I have over I have overused those words, and now whenever I I use them, they just sh- like my lead developer and the lead DBA both just shut off, and they're like, all right, everything he says after this is just you know irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's him ranting, and so I've learned not to use that. Which but it probably yeah, like, is, but you want to hide that. But what's really funny is if you say the same thing without using the word irrelevant, they pay attention. It's like I have used the word too much. It's really funny. That said, like that, that was a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it, the point here is, what's in your database? Like the structure of your database is designed for storing data. The st- structure in your business logic is designed for understanding. The business it's designed for business. They if they match up, that's rare and cool, neato. But, but don't tie them together just because they match right now. Yeah, yeah. If but don't expect that to last, and don't expect that to happen. Don't go in with the all right. We're going to build our database to match our business, or we're going to build our our business logic to match our database. They should be separate. Yeah, because the At way least you if store you do data. A DDD. Yeah, yeah, it's in DDD, the way you store your data and the way you build your business logic, they're they're not going to match up because what's good for data storage is probably is definitely not going to be good for business logic. Yeah, and otherwise so you, you would
1: be writing your app in SQL.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which I've seen you people know, do,
1: <laughs> but including web pages.
0: Oh, I I have I've have seen um, like they can concatenate that crap together and dump it out. Ugh. what is that? I can't remember the t- remember it off the top of my head, but I've seen some applications. Like, I've replaced applications written in... It's it's a thing for Oracle. Yeah, I know what you're talking about
1: because I've done that too, but I can't... I've blocked that memory out and yeah. I don't really want it back, so I'm not going to look it up. Um, <laughs> sorry, folks, you're out of luck. <laughs> uh, so, now, this can be a little bit interesting um, with certain ORMs because they do a really poor job of handling relationships within a single entity, especially when you get inheritance and things like that in the mix, multi-column value types in entity framework will do this, where like they join out to it because they think, oh, this is probably another table, even though it's the same table and it should be smarter and it probably will be in later versions of the framework, but it's not right now. So you do have to be aware that sometimes the ORM is going to get in your way here. Now, speaking of things that get in your way, uh, the other side of it from the or you know below your entity layer, you have your ORM or your data access layer, or whatever you want to call it, your persistence layer. Above it, or going out, you have the you know the edge essentially of your your domain. So, like either uh, web API endpoints, maybe some persistence uh, concerns that are happening to transmit data somewhere else. However, that has to happen. Your domain model should live basically in the inner ring of your app and it should not be getting exposed at the edges because that's an implementation detail and you're going to suffer if you do this.
0: Yeah. So, for example, you have an order type with line items. We've talked about this quite a bit in this episode, but it's a really great way to view this. And advisory is uh, suddenly required by law for certain kinds of items in certain contexts. If you're exposing the full entity at the edge, this change will break the interface contract for callers. Yeah, and this
1: happens even if the caller doesn't care, right? So, for instance, let's say California says this type of material is cancerous, um, which probably goes f- for everything from plastics to pure oxygen, you know, but whatever. It's the state of California. They do their their thing. They, make you put an advisory on it. Well, if it's loaded up in the entity, it may be very, very relevant when you're selling to consumers because they got to be told, hey, this is cancerous. But if you're selling to a manufacturer, they get a material safety data sheet. They know it's cancerous or they know it's whatever. And so it's not relevant to them when they're calling in the app. Because it's, you know, it's essentially different callers consuming the same domain model. Whereas you know, a step down from that, you have different entities consuming the same table to make the, you know, the bounded context. This is the bounded context pushed out. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and you'll break your interface contracts if you do that.
0: Yeah, so to fix this, you want to convert entities to DTOs. We talked about DTOs earlier, which uh, for anyone who doesn't know, a DTO is a data transfer object. It's basically just a class with getters and setters. So it's just, just something that holds the data to be passed back and forth. So you want to convert your entities to these DTOs before sending them over the wire to a caller or to another system. Uh-huh. I, I do this uh, in a lot of the stuff I write by using a view model for yeah. the for that transfer out. And I use a data model for the transfer to the database.
1: Yeah, and I'll typically have the DTO where it can actually in its constructor take the entity and build itself up off of it. So that all that logic stays in the DTO and then that yeah. can serialize and sent over the wire. And then if I have a command come in, you know, that's a different thing. That'll go to a method on the entity and it yeah. understands its thing. But
0: the way I usually build them is I have the I have the DTO and then I have Static extensions for that DTO, which include any
1: versions. The problem I had with it was that I found that I was having to jump too much between the static extension method and the DTO to figure stuff out versus it all being right there.
0: Oh, I put them in the same class or the same namespace. Yeah, so they're in the same .cs file. So, like, I'll have the oh, so you do like a dot create
1: from. So, you have like a static. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I typically do that with a constructor, but
0: I'll follow. Yeah.
1: Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah.
0: It's just not. I mean, they're, they're, so it's funny because that's not something I picked up from you. It's something that I started doing because it was more efficient to do it that way. Yeah. It started off with I had all these conversions in a converter file. And if I wanted to go to like, all right, let me find the conversion for this particular one. Like That might be 3,000 lines of code for all the models, like the DTOs we had. And everybody so I'd have touching to, that file too. Yeah. So if I put the that, that extension there in the DTO, then it was a lot easier to just be like, all right, well, it's only here. Then I started going, well, this other extension, like there's this other class of extensions, I'm like, why not put those in there? So, like, everything related to this class object is here in the same file with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're kind of approaching it the same way I am. It's a uh, merge conflict avoidant development. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because that, when you have a merge conflict, that means that two people touch the same thing mm-hmm. for different reasons. And that probably means it's not the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you could just say the source control system. You know, like if it delivered an electric shock to the entire team, every time you got a merge conflict, your code would be cleaner within a year.
0: Mm -hmm. No. So what you want to do basically is to decouple your implementation from that of the client. That's kind of what we're getting at here.
1: Yeah, and if you do this, be sure and have really good testing around the conversion to and possibly from the DTOs um, because this is a place where you can get errors that are hard to see because you create a DTO and you send it over the wire most of the time, right? Like it's serialized and it leaves and something on the other end deserializes it. But your serializer probably leaves stuff out if it's null, that kind of stuff. And so it's a place where you could easily leave a field out and you won't catch it at compile time in most languages. Yeah. So just, just bear that one in mind.
0: You know, something interesting. I, uh, Weird issue I recently had is um, in something I wrote about a year ago for uploading files to long-term storage. It would it was supposed to send back a uh, a GUID of like for the file that got uploaded, and the person who wrote the API that I was talking to designed it to send back at two hundred with the error message instead of yeah. you know the proper way of doing it so uh, in other words treating
1: it like it's a serial connection instead of web
0: yeah and that was done for very specific reasons it's like don't think bad of the person because it's being it's an api that's being used for things it wasn't designed to do because it just got added on to but all that said one weird thing that i ran into just just recently was we had files that were being moved from the, hey, this is waiting to go up to the it's gone up folder, but they weren't there. And we couldn't figure out why. So we, you know, I like, I couldn't replicate it. So I was like, all right, if they go up, I know I'm going to get back a GUID. Well, what if for some reason it's sending back just like nothing? like if there's a connection issue or something there, then it may be creating a empty GUID and returning that.
1: Right. Or a, a default GUID.
0: Yeah. So I started checking for, like I had to add checks for that, but it's just like, it's like this weird stuff that you gotta, you gotta watch out for. Yeah. It's and, a soft reference. Kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Right. It's like having a handle and the underlying pointer got moved and, you know, yeah. it's like, Oh, I look like I have a right, a correct reference, but I no longer have one. And so, yeah, this will. Uh, get you quite a bit. Speaking of something that will get you frequently, and this is the most common one that you see with bad DDD implementations, is that the entity can transit an invalid state. So an entity, when it's created, should always be in a valid state, and it should remain in a valid state for the duration of its existence. Now, this includes times like just after deserialization. Uh, just after construction, before you fill in properties, uh, that kind of stuff, and while changes are being made to it. Invariance should be enforced across the lifetime of the object. In other words, you don't ever let it get into an invalid state because it's only a few code changes from there for it to stay in an invalid state.
0: Yeah. So this is just how you avoid that kind of problem. So, for example, let's say you have an order entity. You know, again, we're using this a lot. Don't repeat yourself unless you run a podcast. Yeah, and your well, we we do that on purpose because it's easier to understand. Oh yeah, but I know your your system expects the total value to never be negative, but due to someone adding coupons to the system, a situation arises where you can get a negative total, rather than being caught the errors are saved to the database and only caught 20 days later when the accountants notice a discrepancy in the book. And that happens
1: way too often, right? Somebody just, you know, because they're doing naive implementations that, you know, do getters and setters on properties versus going, okay, this entity is in an invalid state and should throw an exception when the total goes under zero. Um, Now, that can also be interesting if you're adding a bunch of items in sequence And, you know, the coupons go first, right? So you still have to be smart about the order you add stuff so that that never happens. But you have to be aware that that is an invariant that you can't break.
0: Hey, didn't um, uh, some banks like 20 years ago or something? With withdrawal fees and
1: overdrafts? Yeah.
0: Yeah, because they were were adding up the withdrawals before they were putting in the
1: deposits. And they did it with the biggest transaction first. Mm Yeah. So that you got as many overdrafts as possible. And yeah, I think they did get in trouble or they had to do, you know, there was something that happened to them. Um, But I mean, this is America and they are banks. So they didn't actually get really punished. It was probably like, you know, it's a $1 fine you can mail in. But they definitely got told, no, don't do that anymore.
0: Oh, no. I I remember I got stuff about being in a class action lawsuit because you remember what happened to me um, when we were in college?
1: Yeah, where you got overdrawn?
0: I Yeah, well, so what happened is I was on a trip out of the country. I was actually on a mission trip and my last two paychecks that I had cashed bounced because the company went out of business and then I got all like I didn't get notified because again I was out of the country, but I got all these overdraft fees and my like when I found out my parents had gone and like Put money in my account for me because, like I said, I was out of the country, but they had taken out all those deposits before they put the money in. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was a big deal. And then I actually got some of that back from the bank because there was like a big class action lawsuit against them because of it. So I just like, I remember that because I remember uh, what I remember is. We get back and uh was it like a week after I got back, you and I were at a martial arts conference up in I think Ohio,
1: yeah, I had to pay for the airline ticket <laughs> yeah
0: yeah well that's 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 how you got the bigger room in the apartment yeah but, uh we we're sitting there uh, like, there's the always an angle before. yeah <laughs> we're sitting there the night before it begins, and uh I get a call like we're at a barbecue, I get a call and it was my old boss going, "Hey, the uh, so I worked at a, I was teaching preschool at the time. She's like, the school got bought out by a different company, and they're wanting to bring everybody back, and they're gonna they're gonna pay us for what like our paychecks that got bounced, and they're offering us like pay increases, like all this stuff happened." While we're sitting there at this martial arts conference, I got off the phone and I told I told Will and the other guys there and Will's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> <sighs> I was stressed and I didn't know what I was going to do. Like,
1: yeah, yeah, this is why you enforce invariants in your code because you don't want to do this yeah. to your customers. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it turns out that they are not your customers after that. And yeah. suddenly the it turns out that your paycheck is not an invariant. Yeah. You could not have one,
0: for instance. So to fix this, don't have public setters. Always have methods that change state and coordinate the changing of multiple properties based on logical criteria. For instance, in the previous method, rather than simply adding a coupon item with a negative value to decrease the total, you might create an apply coupon method that applies a coupon up to the point where the total is zero.
1: Right, and that just takes care of the invariant. Now, you've obviously, that's a little time-sensitive and order-sensitive, but that's how you might approach it. Now, this sounds easy to accomplish, but sometimes ORMs will get in your way due to constraints on constructors like we talked about before. Uh, this can also be an issue if older records were valid without certain pieces of data, but you don't want the new ones to not have it. What happens when you load one of those up? You're going to have to figure out how to mitigate this, and versioning entities and objects is a very interesting problem to have.
0: So finally, the the last anti-pattern that we're going to talk about is mutable value objects. Like entities, value objects should enforce their invariance during their lifetime. However, because they may be passed around among entities... They also shouldn't support changes in state as that adds a lot of low value complexity.
1: So imagine a situation where you have a system that has a directory of people with their addresses. I deal with this at work. Actually, we have one. You also keep track of marriages. Again, we do that. So when somebody gets married, your system has a place to match the spouse's address, right? Like these people got married. Presumably they're living in the same house. Now, that's usually the way that works. And so you go, hey, I want to change this person's address to this person's address. Right. So you've got a command that goes and says, copy this address over here or just give them a reference to the thing where it saves and, and goes on with life. Now, yeah. if that object is mutable, it's entirely possible that you will have both those things loaded and change it for one and not the other or you make a copy. Um, so like, you just got to pay attention to it. Like It's not so much that, I guess, that it'll change, it's that the containing object does not get a notification that it changed, and so any business logic that has to happen around that doesn't, because that, that value type is shared between the two.
0: Yeah, so to fix this, you want to extract reusable sets of fields into value types, make them immutable.
1: And then always point to the same instance when you mean the same set of values. Now, a lot of times your ORM will screw this up. Mm -hmm. Um, If it doesn't support immutable types, you have a problem and should probably get a real ORM. Sorry, I I, I hate that kind of crap where it's like, oh yeah, here's a new instance. It's like, if it's the same, it's got the same hash code as a previous one, give me the previous one because they're equivalent. Like make them memory pointer equivalent versus just deep inspection equivalent. Yeah. And then you get around that problem because now you've changed the value at one reference point and they all get the update. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, it being screwed up. You might also have to do something like overload the equality operator if your language lets you do that for these types. I would advise this anyway even if you're counting on the ORM to give you the same instance back. If it's the same thing, it's not always just the ORM that that creates these things. So go ahead and override the equality operators so that if you get two things that are disparate you know instances, but they are the same value, you can, you can clear it out, basically.
0: So guys, if you work for a company that is trying to use domain-driven design but hasn't quite internalized all the lessons of it, you'll probably run into one or more of these anti-patterns as you go through the code base. It's important to remember that they are at least trying um, and got part of the way there. You simply just need to get them the rest of the way to a successfully implemented version of domain driven design um, because this is a really excellent approach to building software
1: i would like to give a thank you and shout out to Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episodes. Through his sponsorship, Lucas is helping us achieve our podcasting goals, just like he'll help you achieve your financial goals. Beach, what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade?
0: So today at lunchtime, I went over to my mom's um, just to kind of, she invited me over just to to walk around her yard. Uh, once One time around the perimeter of her yard is a quarter mile, so... You know, we got uh, two miles in today. While I was there, her neighbor's dog came out and started to harass her. Um, we actually had to end the walk early because she was scared of this like little dog. Like she had texted the neighbor about it, but nothing happened. Uh, so I went over to the talk to him. And I mean, I wasn't mad at the dog, but I was upset with the neighbor. Because they either couldn't or wouldn't control their pet and like keep it in their fenced yard or inside. Turns out it was their teenage son who was home alone, let the dogs out, and not thinking, hey, they can get out of the fence. That he he didn't know any better, but you know, learned a lesson when this, you know, long-haired, tattooed, scary dude shows up and is like, hey, You need to keep your dogs off my mom's yard. Your dog insulted my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, a lot of times we get upset at the wrong person or the wrong thing when something negative happens. Uh, Getting mad at, for example, a host because a restaurant is full. Or at your laptop because the Windows update broke something. This is sort of an anti-pattern of problem solving. Really. You know, instead of getting frustrated or acting out, um, look for a solution to the problem. It's not easy, especially when emotions get involved. uh, You get angry. You want to just like attack. So one thing to do is just start with recognizing that you're upset and then look for the source of the problem. Try to figure out what the problem is so that you can at least be upset at the source of the problem. I'm not mad at my laptop because the fan won't stop running at full blast. I'm mad at Microsoft for their Windows update breaking my laptop, you know? So just keep that in mind. And, you know, that's pretty much all I got. Standby for Titanfall.
1: If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells.
0: Available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to
1: completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.